asked you, what do we do with the Mosaic law now that we're Christian, now that we're born again believers in a new covenant? Several of you would give me different answers. Some would say that we need to keep it, uh, not to be saved, but to actually, you know, reflect and express our love for God and our fear of the Lord through obedience to the Torah. Others of you would say, well, no, we discard it because the new covenant replaces the old. Some of you might say, well, we implement as much as we can uh, within the Mosaic law to show and express again that love and fear we have for the Lord. In other words, some of you would say that the Mosaic law in its entirety, as far as we're able to, outlines for us obedience and sanctification and that process of God transforming us includes us obeying the laws of Moses. So what we're going to explore today in this last episode in this series on what about the Mosaic law, uh, is we're going to actually finally answer the question, what do we do with the law of Moses? We've already established what the law of Moses is, how the old covenant, the Sinai covenant, is actually built on and includes the law of Moses and the Ten Commandments, um, and the commandments that are written on the tablets of stone that actually you know, are distinguished from the book of Moses. We've talked about that. We've talked about what it means that Jesus came to fulfill the law. We've talked about what it means that we've been set free from the law. Uh, we've talked about what it means that we've come out from under what the law demanded and actually declared about our sin, which is the consequence for sin, the death and spiritual separation from God. So now the question becomes things like the dietary laws of Israel, things like certain civil laws and, and laws regarding, uh, I don't know, mixed fabric, things like the Sabbath, not to at all bring the Sabbath down from the Ten Commandments down to the level of, you know, dietary laws. But, you know, for those that hold to Mosaic law and see it uh, as something we hold to today in the New Covenant, you would say all the laws of God are equal in the sense of gravity. And there might be different consequences in terms of when you break a, cup, a, a certain command, there's different degrees of consequences, right? Worldly consequences that come attached to that. So I'm not trying to take the Sabbath out from the Ten Commandments, but we are asking when it comes to Sabbath, dietary laws, feastal gatherings, and the feastal laws of Israel, and the calendar of Israel, how much does a new covenant believer born again in Jesus 
have to adapt to those things and include those things? Is it required? And so to say this up front, everything we're about to look at, I am not telling people that you should not obey the Mosaic law. That's not what this is about. I'm not encouraging people to not do these things. If you feel led to, and you come to a different conclusion than I do, I will never tell you to go against your conscience. I just want our convictions to be rooted in truth. I want my conscience to be led by a proper understanding of what it means to be in the new covenant and what the truth of God communicates. Because if you have convictions and your conscience testifies to things that aren't truly rooted in a proper understanding of the word of God, uh, it just leads to a lot of problems. So again, I'm not telling people not to do these things. The better question is, are we required to? And so the secondary question then becomes, if we're not assuming that hypothetically, then should we not do these things just because we're not required to? And I would say not necessarily. Just because we don't have to, just because it's not required, does not mean we should not. Does not mean it's, it's not a good idea or it's not wise. There is wisdom in these things. So as we go through Acts, as we look at the letters of Paul, as we look at what Peter says, as we look at everything that the New Testament scriptures testify of the Mosaic law, now that we're in the new covenant, I really want you to hold on to these ideas. I am not telling people to not hold to what the Mosaic law says. If you feel led to, and at the end of this, you go, you know what, my convictions say otherwise, I encourage that. Why not hold to the Sabbath? Why not have a day of rest on Saturday? Why not honor the Lord with the day of rest and hold to the Sabbath? Why would you not? You know, just because you're not required to doesn't mean you shouldn't. So again, I'm probably leaking a bit of my views before I get to the scripture. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. All I'm saying is that these specific Mosaic laws you feel convicted about and required to obey as the people of God is that personal conviction, is it fair to say that's an objective requirement for all of God's people? Let's go to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. I'm going to close the chat so I'm not distracted this morning. This is a big one. You can see how heavy this is weighing on me because I just want to establish it once and for all so we can kind of end this debate and just move on. Acts chapter 14, actually, okay, talking about Paul and Barnabas. Uh, talking about their missionary journey. I believe this is their second. I could be wrong. They passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. Good names for children, by the way. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, another great name for a kid, they went down to Italia. I'm just, this, this scripture is loading you up with, you know, names for your future children. And from there they sailed to Antioch. Okay. This is not their first time in Antioch. And this is different than uh, another Antioch that gets listed in scripture, a different Antioch. This is, you might say, the main hub for what Paul and Barnabas would call their ministry. So from there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. So they're not going to a place where a church is not already established. I want to say that up front. They've been sent out. Elders have been appointed. There are prophets and teachers appointed in the church at Antioch. These are a, this is a mature group of believers. They've been commissioned from there by the Spirit to go and do the ministry God called them to. Now they're coming back to Antioch after doing what God called them to. When they arrived and gathered the church together, okay, they declared all that God had done with them, how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. Now there's been quite a bit of time that has passed 
since the Gentiles have been given an open door into the church. In other words, since Peter went to Cornelius' house and it was established by God that Gentiles are welcomed into the kingdom through faith as well, that a lot of time has passed since then. Here we have the first uh, uh, church council, the first time the the elders come together, the, the apostles, to actually figure out what do the Gentiles have to do in order to be a part of this Jewish faith? if it is indeed purely Jewish. And yes, there's a Jewish heritage, but how much of that carries over into the new covenant? Jesus was Jewish, he followed Jewish laws, there's Jewish heritage behind our faith and the foundation of the law and the prophets, all that. I'm not denying that. But the question then becomes, look at verse 15, or chapter 15, verse one. Some men came down from, from Judea and they were teaching the brothers, ah, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. So what are they telling the disciples at Antioch? You can't be a part of the kingdom. You can't have a share in this, you know, kingdom. And you can't be saved and forgiven unless you're circumcised. They're making a physical matter of spiritual, eternal, salvific importance. So after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this specific question, which is going to be expanded into something more. It doesn't just become an issue of circumcision, it becomes an issue of what do they need to do to be a part of this beautiful, you know, salvation we have in the Messiah. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. And this brought great joy to all the brothers. Okay. When they came to Jerusalem, which is like the main source of, of, of the church, I mean, the elders are there, Peter and James, the apostles. And so you come here to verify doctrine. So when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. Notice this repeating theme of Paul and Barnabas testifying to all that God has done through them or with them. But some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees, by the way, these are believers. They're still a part of the sect or the party of the Pharisees. They hold to Pharisaical teaching um, and the tradition, but they are believers, okay? And how you mesh the two, that becomes the whole confusion and debate here. But some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and they said, it is necessary It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them, keep the law of Moses. So this becomes not just about circumcision. Physical circumcision is a side issue. Of course, Paul and Barnabas were sent to deal with that and go, do they have to be circumcised? Like, is that how they're actually grafted in and that's how they're saved and that plays a role in their salvation and righteousness? But it becomes and morphs into, well, how much of the law of Moses are they required or is it necessary for them to keep? Notice how it's not just circumcision. It now becomes, we, they need to keep the law of Moses, not just circumcision, And I don't believe the Pharisee believers are saying, you know, by keeping, by, you know, holding to circumcision, that's them keeping the law of Moses. There's way more that goes into that. 
In other words, keeping the law of Moses in its entirety is not just to be circumcised. There's a lot more that comes attached to that. So the question morphs into this bigger question of how much of the law of Moses is it required of the Gentile believers to keep? The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. After there had been much debate, in other words, this was not an easy thing. Peter stood up. It's kind of how I feel. I feel like I'm just standing up to kind of like once and for all deal with this. Peter stands up. Brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel. He says in the early days. So it seems like a lot of time has passed and it's been an assumption, an underlying assumption. Well, yeah, the Gentiles are in, but they keep the law of Moses. And it doesn't seem like they've ever thoughtfully reasoned through this and actually asked the question until this point now, which seems to be quite a few years later after Cornelius and the Gentiles are welcomed into the kingdom. So he goes, you know, God made a choice that they could believe in the gospel and God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. God testified of their faith. We saw it in the gift of tongues. We saw it in the works and the, and the gifts. We saw it in the miracles. We saw it in their change in character. Paul would stay with the church. And Gentiles have been validated by God. And he made no distinction between us and them. Because he cleansed their hearts by faith. By faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples. Now, of course, this is a question related to salvation and not sanctification. But we can work our way into the question of, hey, are believers required to hold to the Mosaic law in, in, in order to truly be obedient to God? Is it required of us not to be saved, but to express love and our fear of the Lord in the form of obeying the Mosaic law? Is it required? The question they're, answer, they're answering and asking is, do they need to hold to the law of Moses or how much do they need to, to be saved? Okay, I understand that. This is an issue of salvation, not sanctification. I'm not making it an issue of sanctification, but we can work our way from this as we see how the biblical authors and the letters of Paul start to expand on this idea. So, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? We believe we're saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So by saying they need to hold to the law of Moses to be saved or to be in the kingdom, they're placing a yoke that isn't truly of Christ. They're placing an unnecessary burden on people that Jesus came to fulfill. You're not supposed to fulfill the law. You're still supposed to look to Jesus to do it for you and on your behalf. And all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. I love how like there's order. Everyone's taking their turn. It just kind of gives us a picture of what it should look like to have godly uh, disagreement and debates with people. Everyone gets to share. Everyone is listening when people are sharing their perspectives. So James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. Like this ain't something new. Um, he's gonna quote 
Amos chapter 9, verse 11 and 12. After this, I will return. This is the Lord speaking. I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild. I think it's worth noting this. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it. This is God speaking. He isn't saying Israel's going to do this. He isn't saying people are going to do this. He's saying he'll do it himself. Which this, this becomes likened or paralleled to the work of Jesus. He returns. He rebuilds. He restores. So, who is Jesus claiming to be? Interesting. So, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles. So, by placing the Mosaic law on them and saying, this is required to be saved, they are troubling. They're actually putting the Lord to the test, is what the text said. Those are the Gentiles who turn to God. But we should write to them. Now, here's what's interesting. Look at the four things they agree should be communicated to the Gentile believers from the Mosaic law. Of all the things, like here's a list of what the apostles agree is required for the Gentile believers to hold to and keep. The list is not very long. And you have to ask yourself, why? Is this a restrictive list? Were there things that, you know, get clarified later? Was this a rushed list and they just didn't have time to really think through? And they're like, well, at least, is this an at least? Or is this um, actually what God says the Gentile believers should hold to? In other words, is this, is this a bare minimum? Or is this truly what is required of the Mosaic law for the Gentile believers? And this is not an issue of salvation. No, notice how now the, it, it shifts. Because watch. Uh, we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols. Number one, they should abstain from sexual immorality. Number two, and from what has been strangled. Number three, and from blood. Number four, for from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. He's read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So this now becomes an issue. Notice how it's morphed. James is not telling them, Here's what they need to do to be saved. You have to not eat blood. You have to not eat what is strangled. You have to not uh, part participate. Um, and again, this becomes an issue of the fruit and what is produced through our faith. These four things are things that believers will do. And what James is instructing Gentile believers to do, not to be saved. Now, again, the, the question did eventually become how much of the law of Moses do they need to hold to to be saved? But slowly, and again, notice what he says. My judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but let's write to them to do these things. You and I have to answer the question of this. Is James saying believers have to do these things to be saved or to stay saved? Or is this instructive for believers, things that they will do as fruit of their salvation? Because there is a difference. We don't do anything to enter into the kingdom or to be saved or to gain righteousness. We are righteous. So these four things, I don't believe, become a list of things to do to maintain or sustain your salvation. 
but rather just instruction on how to actually follow God faithfully now that you are saved. So the issue and the topic at hand slowly morphs into now, well, we know it's not about salvation. You know, the Mosaic law has nothing to do with that and redeeming and and making someone righteous because Jesus fulfilled that. So what do we instruct Gentile believers to do now that they have turned to God? Not what they need to do to turn to God and be saved. He says, those are the Gentiles who have already turned to God. Well, let's tell them to do these four things. And these are four things that have always been a part of what God desires for humanity. Look at the law of Moses. Now, of course, when the Mosaic law was instituted, these four things become explicitly clear to humanity. But the point is, of all the things that the apostles could have agreed on, and they do agree on this, they picked these four things. Just got to ask why. Why is the list limited to those four? Is this a, a, a list of all that God requires of his people? What about love? What about charity? What about generosity? What about not murdering? What about, you know, all those things? So I don't believe this becomes a restrictive list of what we are supposed to do as the people of God, but specifically what from the Mosaic law, uh, not the Ten Commandments, what from the book of Moses is going to translate into the new covenant believer's life. The question becomes for the Gentile believer, what is it from the book of Moses and the law of Moses in that book is going to apply and is required of them now that they have turned to God. This is not an issue of the Ten Commandments. Because, of course, you know, not worshiping any other God but the Lord. That's the first commandment. You shall have no other God before you. You know, sexual immorality. This seems to be implied within the, hey, don't commit adultery. But these things seem to be more specific dimensions of what the Law of Moses communicated. Um... Don't or abstain from these four things. We'll go on. Okay. For from ancient generations, Moses has had never city those who proclaim him. Okay. So he's saying, well, this is not anything new. People know this. So it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. I love that Paul and Barnabas are just like the messengers. <laughs> They're just always the boys that are sent out. Like, oh, we got something to do. Paul, Barnabas, <laughs> got to send you out. Holy Spirit calls Paul and Barnabas. You know, church at Antioch sends Paul and Barnabas. Jerusalem sending Paul and Barnabas back. So they send Judas called Barsabbas, not Barabbas. <laughs> That'd be cool if this was Barabbas. He's saved. And Silas leading men among the brothers with the following letter. What is this letter going to resolve? The question of what is required of new covenant Gentile believers now that they are saved. They've already solved the issue of does the Mosaic law save? It does not. Well, how much is required of them to be a part of and to actually, how much of that still instructs their life now that they are believers? What does God require of us? What is true obedience going to look like as we relate our lives to the Mosaic law? And here's the letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, in Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we've heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, even though we gave them no instruction, it seemed good to us, having come to one accord, look at the agreement, look at the, look at the you know, unity, to choose men and send them 
to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. I love that. With our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by the word of mouth. It has seemed good to the Holy Spirit. So this is not just men, you know, coming together and going, Wow, what do we think is good? They're consulting and they did pray. What does the Holy Spirit say? So uh, what they're about to send is confirmed and has the uh, approval of the Holy Spirit because the Spirit of God led them to this after praying and, and coming together and debating. Um, it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. Now again, this is not the issue of what is all that God requires of his people. This is an issue of what is it about the specific book or law of Moses that now is required or translates into the new covenant. That you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, because remember that becomes a real issue um, in, in primarily Gentile pagan cities. Um, that you abstain from blood, don't eat and consume blood. Um, that seems to be implied within the sacrificing and, you know, um, enjoying food. I don't know if the blood there is like interacting with or touching. Uh, it seems to fall under the line of what is sacrificed and, and consumed. Don't consume blood from what has been strangled. And you got to ask, that's interesting. Go back to the law of Moses and from sexual immorality. Now, again, the sexual immorality part that seems pretty clear in the Ten Commandments under the don't commit adultery. But I think sexual immorality actually touches on all the different uh, expressions of sexual impurity. That you might go, well, it's not adultery, I'm not married, or all those things. You can work around. He's just making a general blanket statement. Any kind of sexual immorality, stay away from it. So again, this becomes the requirement. There's, no, there's nothing beyond this that they want to lay on the Gentile believers, which again, that he's not invalidating the Ten Commandments. This has nothing to do with what's written on the tablets of stone. That's an issue of absolute morality and what is good and what is bad. This becomes an issue of, again, what about the Mosaic Law translates into the New Covenant experience as a Gentile? Why those four? If you keep yourselves from these, you'll do well. Farewell. Like, that's it. That's the list. He doesn't say anything about feasts doesn't say anything about circumcision, doesn't say anything about dietary laws, which again, we can't make an argument from silence and say, well, just because you didn't say anything about that doesn't mean those don't apply to new covenant believers. That's fine. I'll give you that. We'll get to scriptures that address that, that issue. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, having gathered the congregation, they delivered the letter. When they read it, they rejoiced. It was encouraging. Judas Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. Which, by the way, here's a little, uh, a little, uh, tra I guess, mini trailer ad to get you excited. Eventually, in the coming weeks, I'm going to do an entire series on the nature of prophecy, not just in Scripture, but in the life of the believer. Uh, whether you're a cessationist or whether you're a continuationist, we're going to look at every Scripture that has to do with prophecy, the nature of it, how it functions, how it worked. In the Old Testament and the New, does it continue now that the Word of God has been compiled and we have the canon of Scripture? Because there are arguments that say, no, it doesn't because we have the Word of God and it's sufficient. Okay, well, we'll look at that. So we'll, we'll, we'll address prophecy. Um, 
but they encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. After they had spent some time there, uh, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So there we go, ladies and gentlemen. The very first, uh, I guess, council, uh, letter, debate, all those different things that is addressing, hmm, now that we're quite a few years into the church and into what Jesus came to establish, we should be asking, what do we do with the Mosaic law for the Gentile believers? What do we do with that? Okay, this is starting to answer the question. I know this is going to create much frustration in people who just have seen otherwise for so long. And I, I'm just giving you the data, man. That's all I'm here to do. I'm not telling you necessarily do it or don't. I'm just answering the question, is it required? Galatians 2 is our next text on this fine journey we're on. Galatians 2.11 says, now Paul's recounting when he had to actually like rebuke Peter. It's funny. Peter tried to rebuke Jesus. He got rebuked. Like he's still getting rebuked, man. And we're years into the church. This is Peter still making the same mistakes. Or I guess making... Uh, mistakes that he's learning from. Peter's not perfect. I think certain church traditions will present Peter as the stand-up perfect fella. I mean, we're years into the establishment of the church and Gentile believers are in and Peter is still rebuked like this. Watch. When Cephas, Peter came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself. Now, what does it mean that he was eating with the Gentiles? That's worth thinking about. Is he eating what the Gentiles are, you know, think they're permitted to outside the Mosaic law? Uh, surely, that's, we can't assume that for sure. Is it just that he's fellowshipping with Gentiles? And sharing a meal there, of course, in that, um, that Hebrew culture meant approval, acceptance, um, actual, like, relationship having. So eating with the Gentiles, it can go beyond just having a fellowship meal. It, I'm not going to say it's for sure saying that he's indeed eating things that Gentiles are accustomed to eating, that Jews are not. And they're like, that's unclean. But uh, you wonder, you wonder why um, this is a big deal for Peter to kind of like change gears when the Jews come. You wonder, is it just that he's eating with Gentiles or is there something else happening? So when they came... He drew back, separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Uh, fearing what? What would they accuse him of? Just eating with Gentile believers? Um, seems pretty established in the early church now, at this point, that Gentiles are in. So the circumcision party uh, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. Hypocritically. And so there's hypocrisy here. So even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So now there's being led astray? When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile. <laughs> look, look at the text. If you, though a Jew, ethnically descending from Abraham, Jewish heritage, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? What's in mind here? Circumcision? 
the fact that Peter's eating with Gentiles? Or is it possibly the fact that he's doing things and eating things that Gentiles, you know, eat and they're accustomed to, that Jews would look in their law and go, that's unclean, not okay. What is it that Peter is doing and is actually, like, Paul affirms it. He's not against Peter living like a Gentile. He's saying, if you are a Jew and you live like a Gentile, you have to ask, what specifically does Paul mean? How is Peter living like a Gentile? And it's okay. In what ways? What characteristics? Well, we know it's at least eating with other Gentiles, but that can't be all it means to live like a Gentile. Just eating with them? What's going on here? So, and not like you, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So again, here's what's happening. Peter sees the circumcision party coming. He draws back into hypocrisy, which seemingly seems to like turn his back on the Gentile believers, right? Um, and then Barnabas is led astray with that hypocrisy. Paul calls that out and goes, bro, why are you forcing Gentiles to live like Jews? What does he mean? Like that he's saying they're required to be circumcised or eat a certain way. What's happening here? Now, let's go to verse 15. I just want you to see it's not bad that Peter is living like a Gentile and not like a Jew, but you should answer the question, what specifically about Peter's conduct is living like a Gentile rather than a Jew? We ourselves are Jews by birth not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. So Paul tells that story to make this point to the Galatian church. We're not justified by works of the law. Is there some, is that, you know, the concept that we're justified by works of the law, was that possibly leaking into Peter's conduct once the circumcision party came? And he said, I can't eat with Gentiles because, you know, they're not circumcised or I can't fellowship with them or I can eat with what's happening there. It's not entirely clear. It's not entirely clear. But through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus in order to be what? Justified by faith in Christ. Not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Right? If in our endeavor to be justified... In Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? No way. No way. If I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. If I go back to the law for a sense of security, salvation, eternal confidence to replace Jesus or add to Jesus by my efforts and works, I've begun to rebuild what was torn down and I'm proving to be a transgressor of the law by not being able to keep it. For through the law, I died to the law, right? So that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I don't nullify the grace of God. If righteousness were through the law, Christ died for no purpose. So whatever Peter's doing here, his conduct of hypocrisy, him standing condemned, him fearing the circumcision party, whatever Peter's doing or how he's reacting, He's affirming the lie that we are justified by works of the law. Or his conduct is uh, telling people that we are justified by works of the law. And we're not entirely sure what's going on there. 
We just know that Paul says this is worth rebuking. This needs to be addressed. So the fact that Jesus ate with Gentiles or, or sinners or pagans or that whatever Peter's doing seems to be, at least from the circumcision party's perspective, they would accuse him of it. And I'll be honest, I don't know what that is. Okay. But I wanted to show you that Peter's not accused of living like a Gentile. Paul just affirms that. And so we have to ask, whoa, whoa, whoa. How? In what way? To what degree? Just eating? Just fellowshipping? Uh, not affirming circumcision as necessary for the new covenant? Was it the kind of food Peter was eating? Because this does come after the vision. And I'll take you to the vision where he gets, that he gets before, you know, seeing Cornelius. And so Acts chapter 21. I'm just trying to go as best as I can chronologically. Acts 21. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. Okay. After greeting them, he related one by one the things God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So now Paul arrives at Jerusalem. He's telling everyone what happened, right? And when they heard it, they glorified God. They glorified God. And they said, you see, brother, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. Now, this is Acts. This is not Paul writing. For those of you that want to discard Paul and have nothing to do with Paul, that's fine. This is Acts. This is Luke, beloved physician. So you're going to discard Luke too? And by the way, Peter actually affirms Paul in his writings. So you have to discard Peter too. And if you're going to discard Peter, you're in a lot of trouble. Just saying. So Acts 21. When they heard it, they glorified God and they said, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. So there are Jewish believers. Let's highlight this. And they're zealous for the law. But they do believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. <gasps> is that true? Telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They'll certainly hear that you've come. Here's what we recommend. Do what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men, purify yourself along with them, pay for their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Nazarite vow. Thus all will know that there's nothing in what they've been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. Okay, right here. So people have been accusing Paul of teaching other people, teaching other people that the law of Moses is not something we hold to. Well, he's not telling people not to do, he's not telling Jewish believers not to do that. Um, and specifically here, listen to the accusation that they're trying to protect Paul from, okay? They're trying to protect Paul from this because they're going, people are accusing you of this, but it's not true. People are saying, Paul, that you go to the Gentile cities, right? And you're teaching the Jewish people to abandon Moses and the customs, right? They think that you don't observe the law, okay? And that you've forsaken it altogether. 
So let's prove to them you have not. What's interesting here is the accusation is directed toward what Paul tells Jewish believers, not Gentiles, but specifically Jews. Paul does not tell Jewish people to abandon Moses. Now he can't tell that to Gentiles because they haven't been a part of Moses to begin with, right? So, and we'll explain that maybe, maybe later. The, the point of this is saying, look, Paul does observe the law. What does that mean? Well, I think we'll see that in 1 Corinthians 9 when he says, I became a Jew to win the Jews. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we've sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols. Okay, so here's the distinction between Jews and Gentiles. Paul is not telling Jewish believers to entirely forsake Moses, whatever that means, okay? But the Gentile believers have been told, here's what from the law of Moses you're required to do, which is good and has been approved by the apostolic authority. Stay away from meat sacrificed to idols and from blood, what's been strangled, and sexual immorality. Because those are four things that are prevalent in a Gentile pagan culture that a Jew is surrounded by. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them, went into the temple, and giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. So Paul doesn't push back and go, no guys, I don't observe the law. Uh, no guys, I, I do tell Jewish people not that they should forsake Moses. He doesn't say that. He's in agreement. He goes, yeah, let me prove to them that, I'm, that the accusations are wrong. So when you read that, you go, see, Paul observed the law of Moses, even in the New Covenant. Well, you have to ask for what reason and to what degree and how much. And was this for Gentile believers? There seems to be a distinction here in Acts 21. The way Paul would relate to Jewish people and the way he'd relate to Gentiles. It's interesting. I just think it's worth noting. Okay. 1 Corinthians 9.20. Paul says, to the Jews I became as a Jew. What does that mean? Well, I think it's what we saw in Acts chapter 21, where he adapted their customs, where he, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, right? He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Like he was taught by Gamaliel. He was as high of a Jew as you can get. Not like high, but in rank. So he's, that's a, he's as far as you can get up the, up the ladder. And Paul knows what it means to be a Jew, but he's taken his confidence and his security and his righteousness and it's all in Christ, not in the law or his Jewish heritage. So when Paul relates to the Jews, do you know what he says? To the Jewish people, I become as one of them. What does that mean? He actually adapts the customs and the laws, which tells us what? Well, again, I'm not trying to insert things that aren't being said. Let's just keep reading. To those under the law, oh, I became as one under the law even though not being myself under the law. So hold on. Is Paul here talking about looking to the law to save him? Like, you know, when I'm around Jewish people, I live like I'm trying to be righteous by works of the law. No, that'd be hypocrisy and absolute violation of the gospel. So what does it mean that when Paul is around his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters, he functions and acts as someone under the law? which makes it seem like that's not a requirement. This is a choice of Paul to do. To do what? 
to win his Jewish brothers and sisters, which seems like it is an option to come under the law, not in a righteousness way where I'm looking to the law to save, but to function under the law and adapt the, the customs of Moses and the book of Moses and hold to that when he's around Jewish brothers and sisters. Why? To win those who are under the law and who look to the law still and hold to the traditions of Moses and the book of the law. So watch what he says in verse 21. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Now you might call this two-faced or hypocrisy or compromising values. That's not what Paul's doing. There is a way to actually adapt and uh, work with the person we're ministering to. It's not like we lower our, our, our standards. It's not like we compromise our values or we stop functioning as a believer. But whatever I can do to reach someone who is in a different world and, and has a different worldview, I want to step into their shoes and not just see the world through their eyes, but do my best to relate with them from you know their point of view and work with them where they are to build a bridge to Jesus. Paul's doing that. He's the master of looking at someone he's ministering to or a group of people and saying, how far can I go to adapt their ways without violating the gospel or the truth or compromising my values. Paul has mastered that. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that distinction needs to be made. In verse 21, the law of Christ is different than the law of God. But it is still, uh, it includes the law of God. Or let me say it this way, okay? Because I know people are going to be like, heresy, throw stones, blasphemy, false teacher, false prophet. I get that every day. It just bounces right off me. So Paul is saying, I'm not outside the law of God, but I am under the law of Christ. So to be under the law of Christ is not a violation of the law of God. But Paul is telling us that he has permission to function and adapt, whether it's a Jew or a Gentile he's ministering to. He can toggle in and out of uh, conforming to the law of Moses and not being under the law, conforming to the law of Moses based on who he's trying to minister and reach. And if he can remove an extra obstacle between him and his fellow Jewish brother, he'll do it by taking on or, or observing what they do, even though it's not required. Here we see a pretty clear statement that the law the Jewish people are under, okay, Paul does function as being under that. That's not required. That's optional. What do you do with that? Then he goes on, that I might win those outside the law. Paul, you're compromising your values by living as someone outside the law of God. Now, hold on. He's not violating the law. He's not compromising his values or lowering the standard or dishonoring God because he's under the law of Christ, which apparently, okay, I can be under the law of Christ and function as someone outside the law of God without violating the law of God. There's a category for that. I want you to think about that. 
this law of Christ comes into play pretty strongly in a little bit, okay? He is not putting the law of Christ at odds with the law of God, but he is distinguishing between the two. Look, I, I am not outside the law of God, but I do live as one outside the law around the Gentiles because I'm under the law of Christ. So apparently the law of Christ gives permission and allows new covenant believers to function as being under the law or as being outside of what? The specifically the law of Moses. And the law of Christ doesn't violate the law of Moses. It's built on the law of Moses. But apparently to be under the law of Christ means I now have permission to operate based on who I'm ministering to, adapt their ways, you know, minister to them where they're at. If they're under the law, you know, I'll conform and I'll observe what they do. If they're outside the law, I won't. It's not required. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. And notice every point I'm making, I'm not just giving you a couple scriptures. We're gonna look at Romans 9, Romans 11, Romans 3, Romans 13. We're gonna look at Titus 3. I'm giving you as many witnesses from scripture as I possibly can to just load you up with an understanding of how we actually function in relationship with the Mosaic law. I've become all things to all people. This is not Paul being hypocritical or two-faced. That by all means, I might save some. If we are required to hold to the law of Moses, or the Mosaic law and the dietary laws, and all that is written in the book of Moses, then guess what? When Paul is relating to Gentiles and functioning as outside the law, he's dishonoring God and not obeying his name, not obeying the laws of God. He's dishonoring and violating but Paul's not doing that, okay? And we'll get to the whole law of Christ. Romans chapter three, verse 27. What becomes of our boasting? Well, it's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. By a law of faith. Interesting. Romans 8 will give us the distinction between the law of the spirit of life and the law of sin and death. Paul gave us a distinction between uh, the, the, the law of God, which you can equate with the law of Moses. Okay, I don't think he's referring to the Ten Commandments written on stone, but specifically, I think what's in mind there are the customs of Israel, dietary laws, feastal gatherings, everything that is for the nation of Israel, Paul adapts and he actually takes on to minister to the Jews. And he makes a distinction between that and, and being under the law of Christ. Again, they're not at all at odds, but they're not the same thing. Okay? So what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. We operate by a law of faith now, right? We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Listen, is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yeah, he is. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith, which tells us God does not make a distinction between race or ethnicity. 
contrary to several movements and some weird, I don't know, bad theology. God does not make distinction between race in terms of salvation. He saves anyone who believes. That's the grace of God. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? No. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Right here. So again, remember how I said faith is not a violation of the law? The law of faith and the law of works, right, are two different ways to function. I can look to the law to save me, or I can look to Jesus and trust in him to save me. No matter what, I'm putting my faith in something. Either him or my own ability. So Paul is saying, well, since we do operate by faith, does that eliminate the law in its entirety? No way. We uphold the law. So the question then becomes, what about the law is upheld? I think it's worth taking you to Romans chapter 9. Because... Um, it's important to understand all that Israel had as the nation of God that frankly you and I as if you're a Gentile if you're a non-Jew we are grafted into the Jewish heritage of Israel whether you like it or not you need to begin to appreciate your Jewish heritage and the, the Jewish roots of our faith and our Messiah and frankly the, the, the history of the faith we're now connected to There are several people that just do away with Israel. No, God's not done with Israel. Okay. There's a future for Israel. And we can talk about that another time. Romans 9, 4. They are Israelites. This is Paul saying, man, I just wish I could be cut off from Christ to save my brothers and sisters. Like they're Israelites. To them belong the adoption. And I've done a series on Romans chapter 9 because... There is a Calvinist interpretation that I don't think is proper. I don't think it's the right understanding. And I've, I've done a series on that. It's Romans 9 is pretty, pretty hefty. So they have the glory. As the nation of Israel, the adoption belongs to them. The glory, the covenants. And I go in depth, I think, on like either the first or second episode on my Romans 9 study. To them belong the worship and the promises, and I'm not like highlighting these in different colors for any specific reason. I'm just trying to make them stand out from each other. So to Israel belongs the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, guess what? The patriarchs, and from their race, ultimately, who is the fulfillment of all of those things, who is the substance of all of those things, who is prophesied by all those things, who brings a spiritual eternal version of all these things is the Christ, the Messiah. So now with all of that, who is God overall, blessed forever, amen. Let's just throw that in there. Now let me take you to Romans chapter 11. Because remember, the question becomes, what do we do with the Mosaic law? Well, that's the heritage of Israel. That is what makes way for the Messiah, right? The law and the prophets. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, so he's going to call Gentile believers a wild olive shoot. We were grafted in among the others. Those are the Jewish believers. No matter what, it's about having the faith of Abraham, 
not just having the physical circumcision or the, the law or the covenants or the temple. Do you have the faith of Abraham? It's not just about descending from him physically. That's not what saves you. This is why Gentile believers can be grafted into the metaphorical tree of God's kingdom. So we're grafted in among the others, and we now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Don't be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root. It's the root that supports you. Now, we can definitively say Jesus is, at the end of the day, the root, right? He's the substance. He's the, the base and the foundation. He holds this thing together. There is no tree without him. There is no salvation without him. We're grafted into Christ. But specifically, when he says you're grafted into or you share in the nourishing root, I believe that if I could explain this later, because this is just not the time to explain it. I believe that Romans 17 and 18 in chapter 11 is speaking to the fact that we as Gentile believers were grafted into the very heritage of the nation of Israel as if we were a part of it all along. So the law that you're so quick to discard and disregard is actually a part of the, the history of your faith, the history of your Messiah, the history of the actual nation that brought the, you know, the Messiah into the world, being Israel. God brought him into the world through Israel. But you know what I mean? He descends from um, Israel. He's an Israelite. So the point is, and there's a lot of scriptures that confirm this. Just, I have a lot more to get to. I just want to share this with you because I want to caution people who are like, the law is nothing. Israel is nothing. No, 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 no. You and I as Gentile believers are grafted into something and and a rich history all the benefits of Israel that made way for the Messiah, the, the, the heritage of the nation, the heritage of our faith, we're connected to that as if to be grafted into a family tree now where you can trace it all the way back. And guess what? You and I are the descendants of Abraham, the spiritual descendants of Abraham that God promised Abraham would have. More than just the physical nation, it's about the faith. Are you a spiritual descendant of Abraham? Do you have the faith of Abraham? So we're grafted into all that God has given to Israel, like it becomes a part of our heritage and our history now. So you can't look at your faith distinct from Israel. Jesus is Hebrew. He did come from the tribe of Judah. He did adapt. He was the law of Moses embodied and personified the perfect fulfillment of that. And I already talked about how I don't believe the two are synonymous, but the point is, We can't rip out the Jewishness from the faith and go, we're done with that. So I put that on the table, okay? Now I can go to Romans chapter 13, 8 through 10. Because remember, the question we're answering is, what do we do with the law of Moses? Well, you appreciate what made way for the Messiah. You appreciate and value what points to and predicts the Messiah. You appreciate and thank God for the, the, the foundation of our, of our heritage and our history and what made way for Jesus to do what he did. He fulfilled the law. He was prophesied in the law, right? He, he's the perfect, he meets the requirement of the law, all these different things. So I, I just think there's a, we do a disservice and we dishonor God 
when we completely remove the Jewish heritage out of essentially what our faith is built on being Jesus, who is the embodiment of all that. He does come to fulfill things. He does come to be the substance of things. And to disregard those things that are shadows of him is to, I, I think, minimize the work he's really done for us and not appreciate it fully. You're a part of something bigger than you. And the Jewish nation kind of was a step in that process. Okay, I'm not saying you're grafted into the physical nation of Israel. There is a distinction in scripture between spiritual and physical Israel. There is. Um, for another time. Romans 13. Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The law. I think specifically, though, when he refers to the law, and, and I said this, I think, quite a few times, um, that when the law is referenced, sometimes biblical authors or people speaking will be uh, addressing specific dimensions of the Mosaic law, like the ceremonial sacrificial laws, like the dietary laws, like the actual Ten Commandments found on the tablets of stone. That's a part of the covenant at Sinai. So what Paul does here in Romans 13 is he's referencing, right, the entire fulfillment of the law as being love. And what outlines love for us are the Ten Commandments. Don't commit murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't covet, or any other commandment are summed up in this word, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love is the fulfilling of the law. So what God desires of his people is that we would walk in love, which is to fulfill the law. Uh, it seems to be mainly, and, and someone can make a case for, well, the ceremonial laws and the sacrificial laws and the dietary laws and the feastal gatherings, when I do those things, it is a form of me loving my brothers and sisters uh, who are a part of the faith. I'm not inclined to disagree entirely. I see what you're, what you're saying. I see what you're doing. But specifically, Paul does reference the actual Ten Commandments here as being the commandments that are fulfilled in love. Um, he doesn't address the other things in the book of Moses. Now again, I think the Ten Commandments on the tablets of stone distinguished from the book of Moses, that's an important distinction to make. And I, I think Paul is not addressing the ceremonial laws, the dietary laws. He says, he specifically calls out what laws he was referring to, not in a restrictive manner and saying, just don't murder, just don't covet, just don't commit adultery. Well, there's more commandments, right? There's more than just three. He's referencing though, the 10 commandments that are written on tablets of stone. And then second Corinthians, why did I just copy the law? Silly, you silly bean. Titus chapter three, nine through 11, okay? So our relationship with the law, okay? is that our love for people is fulfilling specifically the standard of God seen in the Ten Commandments, which is very instructive, very clear. It's not hard to not murder people. Um, Paul tells Titus, avoid foolish controversies. Sadly, <laughs> several conversations I jump in on the Discord server, maybe I just need to address this right now, are just straight up foolish controversies genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, they're unprofitable and worthless. I didn't say that, Paul did. You need to learn how to identify and discern through what is actually worth your time and energy. 
Some things are worthless and they actually cause dissension. As for a person who stirs up division with what? With controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and sometimes you're not being intentionally divisive, you're being unknowingly divisive. Be careful. Oh, I'm just trying to let them know they're wrong. I want to preserve the truth and keep people out of the lies. You're being divisive. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once, then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Now that assumes they're actually being divisive and you're not just being a victim and you're not just being petty. They actually have to be, you know, qualified as divisive. So knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he's self-condemned. The person who does what? Engages in or divisively uses quarrels about the law. So when it comes to our relationship with the law of Moses, some conversations, and, and sometimes the conversation is, is it required or is it not? Well, let me tell you why it is required. That can become an unprofitable and worthless conversation, depending on the scenario, depending on the hearts involved, depending on the environment, depending on who's listening. Just be careful. Some of you are more concerned with getting your understanding across because you think that's the only possible interpretation and it's at the expense of love and unity and a new believer's faith, you're not even considering those things. Be careful. Be careful. That's my fatherly warning to you guys. I ain't messing. Watch me ban people real fast. The question then becomes, hey, what law do we operate by now? which is going to, uh, again, continue to answer the question, which is overarching, how do we function in relation to the Mosaic Law? Well, I think we've gotten quite a bit of information to process and meditate on. And I think this will also clarify some things. Scriptures do say that we've come out from under the law, that we've been freed from the Mosaic Law, um, whatever that means. And I explained that in the last episode that I believe it actually refers to not just the penalty of sin and the wrath that is justly given for sin, right? But it actually includes a dimension of the Mosaic law, not the Ten Commandments, but certain dimensions of it, which I've shown you a lot of, I don't know, Hebrew speaks a lot to that. So the question becomes, look, if we've come out from under the law, what law do we now come under? Remember how I showed you in Romans 3.27 that there is a distinction between the law of works and the law of faith? Okay. So we now operate by what Paul calls the law of faith. Now, does that exclude the law of Moses in its entirety? Um, no. I don't believe so. Romans 2 tells us this. When Gentiles who don't have the law. And I've also done an episode on this where Romans 2, typically people will say, these are Gentile unbelievers. You know, they're getting the point across that the word of God is written on our hearts and our conscience. Okay. I explained why I don't believe Romans 2 is speaking to an unbelieving Gentile, but a believing Gentile. So with that assumed, which you'd have to watch the episode, when Gentiles who don't have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. What is this law that they're operating by? Well, 
it seems to include, right, and have a connection to whatever law Paul is referring, which I believe refers to the Mosaic law. Um, that's really the only two categories that he'll use in Romans. So he's saying when Gentiles who don't have access to or knowledge of the Mosaic law, right? But, you know, they come to Christ, they hear that he's the Messiah, they believe in his life, death, and resurrection, and they, by nature, because they have a new nature, they do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. In other words, they begin functioning according to a law that is seems to be distinct from the actual law of Moses, but it does have a connection to it, even though they don't have the law. So this can't be the actual Mosaic law. They don't have it. They don't know about it. But they're functioning according to a law that has to do with their, I believe, the new nature God gives us and the new mind, the new heart. So they show that the work of the law, which, which I believe Romans 8 will clarify, the fulfillment of that law in Jesus is written on their hearts. So it's not just that Jesus fulfills the law and that's written on my heart so that God sees the perfection of Jesus on me. But also, now I will go and do, because I want to, the works of what it is that honors God in the law, which is don't murder, don't lie, don't cheat, all those different things. Um, so, no matter what, there is a category for a believing Gentile, and it's written on their hearts while their conscience bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So I didn't come into this just to, you know, spend the whole time expositing this passage. I just want to show you that a believing Gentile operates by a different law um, that seems to be distinct from um, the, the law of Moses itself. It's written on their hearts. Um, it's written on their hearts, there's, there's desire, there's maybe a change in, in, in perspective, a new relationship with, you know, God's law. How, however you go about that, Paul does say the work of the law, which is the fulfilled work. And I believe the intent to actually like honor God. Uh, it's a new desire, a new mind. All of that is written on the heart and it becomes a law to themselves. Um, and I think what Paul is getting at is this. I'm building a case, okay? Don't just take that verse. Romans 8, 2 says, The law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So there is the law of sin and death. There is the law, um, which I believe refers to the Mosaic law, because no matter how you parse out the law of sin and death, sin and death, you can't take the law out of the equation. Sin capitalizes on the law, takes advantage of the law to produce more sin, which results in death. So death creeps into the world through sin, which is a violation of the law, and the law declares death can legally enter in. So the law of the spirit of life, different than the law of sin and death, right? The law that believing Gentiles operate by, different than, but connected to uh, the law that they do not have, or they have no knowledge of. And this law of the spirit of life, just like in Romans 3.27, seems to be the law of faith. Or 1 Corinthians 9.21 speaks of the law of Christ, which again, I already said, is not a violation of the law of God, right? Which seems to be, you know, packaged as the law of Moses. It just doesn't seem to be one in the same. One in the same. Uh, I don't believe they're synonymous. Otherwise, he wouldn't make this distinction. What is the law of Christ? It seems to be the law of faith. 
It seems to be the law of the spirit of life. It seems to be what the Gentile believers operate by. Um, Galatians chapter 6 verse 2. It says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. It's one thing for biblical authors to just use this in place of the Mosaic law. But, I mean, in Romans 8, 2, in Romans 2, uh, in Romans 3, in 1 Corinthians 9, there is a clear distinction between the law of Christ and the actual law of Moses itself. Um, and, and you have to ask why. And, and what does it mean that I'm under this law? Okay, James chapter 2 is another passage. Um, it says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well, right? But if you show partiality, you're committing sin. And, and you're actually convicted by the law as transgressors, right? Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, don't commit adultery, also said, don't murder. So remember how I said, I think two episodes ago, I said the Mosaic law stands as a witness against, to expose, to actually point out the problem, to show us we can't, to show our inability and our own evil and wickedness. But here, the fulfilling of the royal law is loving. Okay, So this royal law, right? is actually fulfilled in just loving. Now, I'm not meeting the requirements of the law by loving. Jesus fulfilled the law. But as I trust in him, I now meet the righteous requirement of the law, Romans chapter 8. And so now when I go and love people, not only does it testify to the fact that I have fulfilled the law in Christ and he's fulfilled it for me, but it also is an actual doing what it is that the law requires, which is to love. As opposed to the law pointing out our failures or me failing in one point. In other words, there's a distinction here. You fail at one point of the law, you're guilty of all of it. And specifically, he'll refer to the Ten Commandments here, right? But, and, and again, this is why I said, typically, when you see fulfillment of law or love or um, commandments, those will be paired with specifically the Ten Commandments on tablet stone, not sacrificial, not dietary, not, uh, you know, even Sabbath keeping, weirdly enough, not, um, I don't know, feastal traditions, not, you know, those things have value. I'm just saying, when you see the fulfilling of the law and loving, it's, it's specifically connected to the actual Ten Commandments itself. Um, and, and that law will expose your inability. Or Jesus fulfills the law for you and you can go and love people now. But I just find it interesting that he calls it the royal law, which is like the royal decree from the king. James chapter 1. What's in James uh, chapter 1? Oh, I knew it! Guys, come here, look. What's up, bro? My brother's here! And we're live! <laughs> you see this moment? I knew he was coming. I, for days, I've been nothing. telling him he's you coming. Uh, sit with me, sit with me. So, uh, James chapter 1, it says, Be doers of the word, right? Not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. He looks at himself, goes away, and at once uh, forgets what he was like. Now watch. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. 
James is not saying, hey, look at the law of God. Do that and then you'll be blessed and you'll be saved. He's not talking about gaining righteousness or salvation. He's assuming you actually are already in Christ. So now the law, the Ten Commandments specifically, as addressed in James 2, gives you a clear, instructive definition of what it means to go and love people. So I look into what the law of liberty here is. And, and you can say, well, this is the Mosaic law. I don't know. James 2 makes it very pretty clear to me, like in just a few verses, he's going to speak to the actual Ten Commandments. So I don't look to the book of Moses or the law of Moses and all those different things to give me a sense of how do I love people? Love and law of liberty, perfect law, seems to be the law of Christ we now function according to, which is in absolute accordance with the Ten Commandments on the tablets of stone. I am not at all putting the law of Christ at odds with the Ten Commandments. Hear me. Hear me clearly say that, okay? I'm not saying they're at odds. If, I'm just looking at the comments. John says, anyone else want to say Paul's writings are garbage? Oh. Keep it coming, John. Okay. Uh, I love my, my brothers. So, if the law we operate under now is law of faith, law of spirit of life, the law of Christ, uh, the law of, of liberty, the royal law, which by the way, the law of liberty won't be a, a term used for the Mosaic law or the old covenant. Uh, you just have to ask yourself, Romans 2, Romans 8, Romans 3, 1 Corinthians 9, Galatians 6, James 1 and 2. What is now our relationship under this new covenant or new law of faith, of Christ, of the spirit of life? What is our relationship with specifically dietary laws, Sabbath. And again, I, I feel like I have to preface this. I, I think I made it pretty clear that our relationship with the Mosaic law is that it's been fulfilled by Jesus. So I can now function, un, function under a new law in which the Mosaic law itself has a different function and purpose now that I'm in this new covenant under the law of Christ. Because again, I gave you categories yesterday for there are things in the Mosaic law that have changed function, been uh, fulfilled in terms of they vanished away, they're obsolete. That's the language of Hebrews, not mine. Okay, But at the same time, that it still rings true that Jesus fulfills the law and doesn't abolish it. So again, when, I, when we talk about Sabbath, when we talk about dietary laws, I am not telling people not to to obey these laws, if they feel led, if they feel convicted, if your conscience testifies, I feel personally, that's fine. I am not encouraging people to not do these things. Hear me, hear me. I am telling people that you should think about why you're doing them. Um, and secondly, do not make it an objective law or requirement for all of God's people. What I'm about to tell you is that I don't believe the dietary laws um, or the Sabbath itself is a requirement or absolute, uh, this is how to obey God. And if you're not doing these things, you're not obeying him. In other words, I don't believe the dietary laws or Sabbath keeping now in the new covenant 
has anything to do with truly obeying or being sanctified, again, if your conscience testifies to it, go ahead. I'm not saying not. I encourage people to keep the Sabbath. Do you have to? I don't believe so. So why would you encourage something you don't have to? Because not everything good is absolutely required as a command, right? It's good for me to not walk in the road and stand there in the middle of the freeway, you know, just trying to dodge cars as they're coming at me. That's, that's a good thing to not do. Do I need the Bible to instruct it as a clear command? And you're going, you're conflating morality with actual sound wisdom. Okay. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. Since the law, and this is going to preface dietary laws and Sabbath keeping and even feasts, stuff like that. Since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. What did he say the law has? Does it have the true form or the reality of the good things that are now spiritually, eternally valuable to us? No. He says the law has. It seems to be a restrictive statement. Here's how far the law can take you. Here's its function. It just is a shadow of the good things that come in Christ. Okay. Colossians 2, the entire chapter, will also, I believe, verify this. And yes, I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's a big one. So buckle up. Go get your coffee. Go take a shower and unwind if you're really mad at me. But let's read Colossians 2. And then I'll get into scriptures that specifically address dietary laws or Sabbath keeping. Okay. So I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, Paul says. For those at Laodicea, for all who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So the mystery hidden within both the law and the prophets in the entire Hebrew Bible, the mystery that was concealed, the underlying wisdom within every law, the, what the law and prophets testified and prophesied of is, the, is Jesus, is the Jesus, is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Why does Paul put Christ up front as the ultimate treasure and wealth of, of our existence? Because there are people creeping into the Colossian church that are trying to bring Christ lower by putting other things above him or alongside him as necessary for salvation. And they're plausible arguments. Like they're reasonable I think that's what the word plausible means. Let's not be dumb on a live stream, huh? Let's actually look that up. Plausible. Seeming reasonable or probable. Ah, yes, good. I'm not an idiot. It's always a relief, right? Okay. So there are very strong arguments coming into the Colossian church, and Paul's saying... These things are taking you away from the true substance, Jesus, the true wisdom and knowledge of God, the mystery that's concealed in the Old Testament. Even though I'm absent in the body, I'm with you in spirit. I'm rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So 
these plausible arguments that people are bringing into the Colossian church seem to be at odds with or violating the firmness of faith of the Colossians. Now watch. Specifically, these plausible arguments are going to have to do with things of the body, things of the material world, things that, weirdly enough, have their basis in the law of Moses. These are not just Gentile pagan ideas. These are not just twistings of the Mosaic law. Watch what he says. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy. Empty deceit. But that deceit and those philosophical plausible arguments are according to human tradition and they're according to the elemental spirits of the world. Um, where else is this used? I think it's in Galatians. Nonetheless, the deception coming into the church has to do with human tradition, which you go, oh, yes, that's just the pharisaical teachings that are in violation of the law of Moses, never were prescribed by God. But the elemental spirits of the world here actually can be translated elementary uh, principles of the world or elemental principles. So not just elementary in their basis, not just like a low level kind of thing, like this is obvious and this is something you should learn early, but elemental having to do um, right here with the material physical world, not according to Christ. So whatever they're bringing in the deception, it's not according to Christ. And he'll explain what these are in about verse 16. Okay, so hold on to that. Human tradition, elemental spirits of the world. In other words, things that have to do with material, physical, earthly things. Okay. In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Why would Paul say that right after this? Whatever verse 8 is communicating, the deceptions, uh, the philosophies, the plausible arguments, those things seem to be um, at odds with the fact that Jesus is God in the flesh. Or you might say, Paul is uh, going to push back against these arguments and present the solution as, hey, Jesus is God in the flesh. In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells. And you've been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him, in him also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. And you're like, mm, I don't remember that when I signed up to follow Jesus. By putting off the body of the flesh. It's a spiritual circumcision of Christ. And it's related to baptism, spiritual baptism. Having been buried with him in baptism. In which you were also raised with him through faith. In the powerful working of God. Who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses. And the uncircumcision of your flesh. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I think he's speaking to Gentiles, huh? God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This record of debt, which seems to imply the law and what it demands of us, and if we don't fulfill the law, what it demands we experience, Death is the just penalty for sin. That record of debt, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now, I'm not saying the law of Moses was nailed to the cross and reading anything into this. 
All I'm saying is what the law required of us and the debt we owe and the sin we committed, that was nailed to the cross. And when Jesus does this, he's disarming the rulers, authorities, and putting them to open shame by triumphing over them. Okay? In Christ. Now watch. With all that up front, why does Paul, before he gets to the specific arguments and philosophies and deceitfulness that's coming into the church, before he gets to the specifics, why does he preface it with, hey, these are elemental spirits of the world, according to human tradition, and then he goes off on how great Jesus is. He's God in the flesh. He's raised you to life. He's dealt with your sin. Because all those beautiful realities we have in Christ, they're being undermined by whatever it is these people are bringing into the church. In other words, whatever these arguments are, seem to be pushing against all the blessings and the beautiful things we have in the Messiah. Therefore, because Christ has triumphed over the ruler's authority, over sin, over death, in light of that, therefore, don't let anyone, let no one pass judgment on you. Can I uh, control what judgments people make about me? No. Can I control whether or not I submit to their judgment and agree with it? Totally. If someone says something about you and goes, ah, you're a false prophet, I can choose to believe that judgment and come under it, or I can choose to discard it. I think what Paul is saying here is the judgments that are coming against the Colossian church in the form of deceitful philosophies that have to do with the elemental spirits of this world. And you might say, well, it's an elementary, elementary principles. That's different. No, it's not. Because the elementary principles of Christ found in Hebrews chapter 5 and 6 provide the foundation for what he does for us. The Mosaic law, all the traditions, he does fulfill all that. He is the substance of it. So those are basic things you learn to come into Christ if you're a Jewish person. You see him as the fulfillment of that, right? So let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. Now you go, well, it's not saying anything about dietary laws. Okay. Or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These, I think if we're to pair this with the food and drink, it seems most likely that this has to do with whatever we see in the law of Moses that has to do with food and drink. Dietary laws, sacrificial offering laws, um, uh, whatever the laws are for the people who are bringing certain sacrifices and how much they can actually, you know, participate in that and, and consume that. So the judgment people are bringing into the Colossian church, it's a deception. It's promoting the elemental spirits of the world. That's what their deceit is rooted in. It's bringing in these ideas that Paul is saying, don't let anyone pass judgment on you in questions about these things. And you go, well, hold on. I think Paul is actually saying that believers are doing these things and other people coming into the church are saying, you don't need to do these things. And so Paul is saying, stand your ground. Don't let them deceive you. That would be reasonable 
if we didn't see the next verse. When you read verse 17, that verse seems to be at odds with the concept that Paul is affirming dietary laws, affirming that you are required to hold to the festivals and you're required to hold the new moon and Sabbath. That verse 17 kind of robs that argument of its teeth. These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to who? Christ. If Paul's argument was, hey guys, these things are required. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. He wouldn't say these are just a shadow of what Christ brings. He's the substance. He's the one casting the shadow. He's the fulfillment. He achieves its end. He wouldn't say that he's the substance. He would say, guys, you know, Jesus came to fulfill the law, but also like you need to do these things. They're required. It seems like he's saying the opposite by claiming that they're just a shadow of the things to come, which actually agrees with Hebrews chapter 10. Remember Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1? And remember, remember, the law has but, or just, a shadow of the good things to come. The true form of these realities, Christ. So, that's why Paul stopped mid-writing and goes, before I address these arguments and the deception, let me remind you who Christ is. So that now they see food and drink, dietary laws, uh, assumed if we're relating this to the book of Moses, festivals, new moon, Sabbaths, so that the Colossian church sees these things in light of Jesus' work on the cross. Because again, people are, I believe, look at verse 18, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism. Hold on. What's asceticism? What's escape? Severe self-discipline and avoidance of certain forms of indulgence, typically for religious reasons. In other words, asceticism is taking physical, material, earthly things and abstaining from that, which seems to be closely connected to the kind of uh, heresy that was in being addressed in 1 John. Um, but I can't remember the terminology for that. But this is a severe self-discipline where you go, this is a spiritual thing for me to stay away from certain physical, uh, worldly things. Those are bad. That was the lie perpetuating the early church, especially First John addressing, which is, hey, everything of the world, it's bad. Stay away from it. Spirit is good. Flesh bad. Material bad. World bad. And it's like, well, is it? And so people are creeping into the church, insisting on severe self-discipline abstaining from certain physical material things, engaging in certain material physical activities that are borderline self-abusive. But for religious reasons, to feel more spiritual. In other words, they're attaching a higher degree of spirituality to certain physical material abstaining. If I stay away from this, I'm more holy, I'm more spiritual, I'm more righteous, I, I gain a higher status in the kingdom. Let no one disqualify you. From what? Let no one pass judgment on you. About what? Well, about these things. And by passing judgment about these things on the Colossian church, these liars and false teachers are trying to disqualify them. From what? From everything he just said Christ has done for them. You are, 
You were dead in your trespasses, now you're alive. You're forgiven. Christ paid for your sin. He triumphed over the spiritual forces of evil in your place for you, gained your victory, and now you're ultimately triumphing in him, and you participate in his victory over sin, death, and the devil. That's yours. There are people creeping into the church using certain things that actually have connections to the book of Moses. And they're using them to disqualify believers from their inheritance in Christ. Now you might say, well, they're making it an issue of salvation. That's what it means. They're saying dietary laws, uh, festivals, keeping Sabbath, you have to do these things to be saved. If you say these things are required of the believer to effectively honor, obey, and serve God, is that pretty close to starting to make it about salvation? Because you're saying, well, the fruit will be these things. Well, if I don't do these things, then you say the fruit isn't there and therefore my faith is invalid. So doesn't it become a question of salvation at some point when it reaches its logical end? Let no one disqualify you. Insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. Going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by their sensuous mind, not holding to the head, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. Now, now you go, I don't think he's talking about like, you know, specific uh, dietary laws or clean or unclean laws. I think he really drives it home in verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, what are those elemental spirits he's referring to? Things regarding food, drink, festivals, which sounds like the Jewish feasts. New moon, Sabbath. Sabbath's only in the law of Moses. So the elemental spirits of the world, apparently, Paul wants you to know you died to those things. Well, he's not saying we died to them entirely like they don't apply to us now. We died to the requirement they had over us so that we couldn't be saved because we couldn't meet them. Okay, why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? Don't handle. Clean or unclean laws. Don't taste. Dietary laws. Don't touch. Clean or unclean laws found in the book of Moses. Referring to things that all perish as they're used. According to human precepts and teachings, look, they have an in, indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So this doesn't seem to be about seeing these things as necessary for salvation. Paul goes so far as to say, you know, these things, these regulations, these Elemental spirits of the world that have to do with the physical and the material and the present world. They don't have any value in actually stopping the passions and sinful desires of the flesh. Now there can be a case made that fasting and staying away from food to rely on God. That is a good, like Jesus expects his people to do that. And it does have a spiritual translation, like it does translate into spiritual strength to resist sin. I get that. But what these people are tempted to see are these regulations. Don't handle that. Don't touch that. Not in a salvific way, but in a required way to actually go and live the life Christ called them to. And just to like nail it, pun intended, because Jesus nailed this to the cross, 
just to really nail it down, he says you died to these things. And you go, that's not regulations found in the book of Moses. I'm just using this scripture as a foundation for everything else that's about to be said. As if Acts 15 and Acts 21 and Romans and Titus, as if those weren't enough. And this isn't addressing anything specifically. All I'm trying to show you, I'm not saying dietary laws are not required or not, or they are. I'm just saying, Paul is telling people, don't let people pass judgment on you, disqualify you. They have to say, well, you have to. Really? You have to? I thought Jesus triumphed over. I thought the legal demands of sin were nailed to the cross. Huh. Is there a way to... I don't know. I won't go there because I know that will just... It'll probably have the wrong effect. I don't want to do that. The point is, the things we've died to, the things that, weirdly enough, the book of the law and the, the book of Moses, what they had to do with were physical, material things of this world. Temple, actual building. Priesthood, actual people doing actual service. Table of showbread, actual physical thing. Animal sacrifices, real physical animals, real blood being shed. Not that Jesus' blood wasn't real. But the point is, all these things are material in nature. Don't eat this. Don't touch that. That's unclean. That's clean. There's mold in your house. All these things are having to do with this physical material world. Whereas Colossians 2 and Hebrews 10 says all of that is but a shadow to be fulfilled by Jesus, who is the substance and the reality. And guess what Jesus does? He doesn't just fulfill the demands of the law. There's prophetic declaration within every single one of the laws that you find in the book of Moses. Each of those laws have underlying wisdom and prophetic utterance of Jesus. And if you miss that, you will look to the law of Moses as if it is required. Now, hold on. I haven't even begun to make my case. The game hasn't even started. This is warm up. Matthew 15, 10 through 11. Now we address dietary laws. Don't eat this, eat this. God's dishonored if you eat it. You're required to eat this if you're God's people. You're required not to eat that if you're God's people. Jesus calls the people to him and he says, look, hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. But what comes out of the mouth, well, this defiles a person. Now you go, yes, on a spiritual eternal level. Well, absolutely. But also, watch what he does. Then the disciples came and said, you know the Pharisees were offended when they, when they heard this. Why would they be offended? Well, number one, they have told people that they do need to be concerned with what they eat because they see that in the law of Moses. Now, of course, you can say the religious leaders twisted this and made it more oppressive and, and, and made it more of a demand and, and made it something it was never to be. But look at what Jesus does. He answered, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Leave them alone. They're blind guides. And if the blind um, lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. For people to think that they're defiled, which, let me just look at the word real quick so no one can say I did not. In real time. Okay. Word defile there. I'm tempted to just say to make unclean. Let, let's just read. Okay. 
to make unclean, to pollute, to desecrate, to regard or treat as common or unclean. Okay, now that I've made my case, that that word is actually speaking to what the law of Moses talks about when it says clean or unclean. Clean or unclean animals, clean or unclean skin disease, clean or unclean bodies, and, and you touched a dead body. That concept Jesus is bringing into, is he violating the law of Moses by saying this? No, he's clarifying. That's all that Jesus does. He clarifies. What you ate or didn't eat was never an issue of your spiritual standing before God. But, okay, he'll go on to say this in Mark 7. He will, and the author, Mark, will insert some commentary. There you go, oh, that doesn't belong there. Clearly that wasn't for, look at, he called the people and he says the same thing. All of you understand there's nothing outside a person that going into you can defile you. The things that come out of a person are what defile them. Same concept in the book of Moses, clean or unclean. And when he entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. You know, because they're not smart. And he said, well, are you also without understanding? Like, you got to really drive that knife in, don't you, Jesus? Don't you see that whatever goes into a person from outside can't defile him? Can't defile him. Cannot defile him. Since it enters not his heart, so where's the source or issue or basis of defilement? The heart, but his stomach and is expelled. And you go, well... For an Israelite to disobey the, the dietary laws of Israel, that, of God, that was a, uh, a proof that their heart was defiled. Okay, look what Jesus does here. Thus, he declared all foods, what does it say? It says clean. That's right, humble. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. And you go, not a strong enough case. If you go to G Peter's vision, I understand that some people read this vision and they go, God is just working with a category Peter understood in the book of Moses to make a statement about Gentile people, not about animals. I've heard that argument. Let's see if that holds water. Peter's on the roof after Cornelius, I believe, is told, hey, send some boys. I got a guy named Peter waiting for you, which is cool. The next day, as they were on their journey, left Cornelius to go and find Peter. Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. He became hungry. And he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. You know, like you do. And he saw the heavens opened. And something like a great sheet descending. Being let down by its four corners upon the earth. Okay. Now again... God could have used any other vision to communicate the fact that Cornelius and the Gentile boys and girls are now clean by the Spirit of God. They can believe, they can have faith, they can be cleansed, all that. Okay, and you go, well, he doesn't. So that's that. It's fine. In it were all kinds of animals, reptiles, birds. And there came a voice to him. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Seems a bit deceptive for God to tell Peter to eat something that is merely a demonstration of the fact that Gentiles are now clean through faith. Doesn't that seem quite deceptive on the part of God to do that if indeed this has nothing to do with animals? Peter said, by no means, Lord. 
Now I understand real quick that in Old Testament prophecy doesn't always come attached with the understanding or the interpretation. I get that. Sometimes God does work with visions and he leaves it up to the person to figure that out or go to someone else and God is working in beautiful ways, okay? But what Peter sees here, I don't believe is only a symbol of what God is doing in the Gentile world. I think he's actually making a statement about the vision he's seeing, animals, clean, unclean, and about the Gentiles who can be represented by unclean animals, right? Pigs, dogs, vultures, that kind of thing. So Peter said, no way, Lord, I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Why? Because that would defile an Israelite. And the voice came and said, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. Bruh, three times. Was Peter supposed to get the vision's interpretation at some point and God just kept trying? Or is the repetition of the vision uh, supposed to be connected to something else going on in the narrative? I don't know. This happened three times and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. And by the way, Peter still doesn't get it. All he knows is he saw a bunch of clean, unclean animals come down. God goes, go ahead, Peter, kill and eat. No. Hey, don't call common what I've made clean. Well, Peter was inwardly perplexed. Let's just make that our Facebook status for the next month. Like I'm just inwardly perplexed. I feel like that's me most of my life. As to what the vision he saw might mean. Did he understand the vision? Not yet. I'm sure he's wrestling with it though. Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, they stood at the gate. And they called out to whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. While Peter was pondering the vision. Do you see the emphasis on Peter not understanding and needing to meditate? This will play into when we go into our series on prophecy and what it actually means to receive prophetic insight or vision from God. It doesn't always mean there's a guaranteed instantaneous interpretation. Sometimes it's progressive. So, while Peter's pondering the vision, the Spirit said, who did? The Spirit. Behold, three men are looking for you. Oh, interesting. The vision repeated three times. There are three men sent to see Peter. Hmm. And he goes, hmm, I will go down. Rise and go down, accompany them without hesitation. I have sent them. It seems to have a connection to the fact that God says, I have made clean what was once called common. Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you're looking for, which must be a really weird interaction. Why are you here? <laughs> and they said, well, Cornelius, I know you don't know him. He's a centurion, an upright, God-fearing man, well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation. You know, that resume. He was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house. Now, if they had come here without God validating this with a vision, I'm sure Peter would have been way more hesitant, okay? But even with an unclear vision, he has enough of God's support and confirmation to go with them. Even though they're Gentiles, unclean, not a part of the holy Jewish chosen, chosen nation of God, chosen. A holy uh, angel to send for you to come to his house and we are supposed to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. That right there already seems off because as a Jewish person, you should not have people who are 
unclean in your house. So what's going on? Peter's, Peter's at least getting a sense of what is eventually going to happen. The next day he rose, went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. So now Peter's going out there with a band of Jewish brothers and sisters, or brothers. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them. I love this. He called together his relatives and close friends. By the way, Cornelius has no idea what he's going to hear. He has no idea what's going to happen. And he just invited his family and his friends to an unknown party. We don't know what's going to happen. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him, fell down at his feet, and worshipped him. Peter lifted him up, saying, Come on, bro. Stand up. I, too, am a man. As he talked with him, he went in and found many people gathered. Peter's used to this. He likes crowds now at this point. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. Okay, so this gets cleared up now in Acts 10, that it is okay for Jewish people to actually interact with and have relationship with, you know, Gentile people. That's why in Acts 15, I, I said what I said earlier, okay, because at least at that point, years have passed. So I think when, or sorry, Galatians, when Paul confronts Peter, and he goes, yeah, Peter was eating with Gentiles and the circumcision party was coming. I don't think the issue there was just that he was eating. It's already been established well back in chapter 10 that God's fine with that. So I don't think that was the issue. I think it has to do with foods. And I think this story actually relates very neatly to to that passage in Galatians. So he says, look, you know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. And this is where people will go, see, he doesn't say animals. That's an argument from silence. Just because he doesn't say that the vision had, uh, that the vision was about, you know, unclean people doesn't mean it wasn't about unclean animals. I'll get to that when I get to that. Verse 29, so when I was sent for, I came without objection. So I asked then why you sent for me. Cornelius said, well, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing. And he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard. Your alms have been remembered before God. So send people to Joppa, ask for Simon, who's called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once. And you've been kind enough to come. Now we're all here. In the presence of God, we want to hear what you've been commanded by the Lord. Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand. Oh, something's happening now. Remember how you didn't understand the vision prior to this? The interpretation of the vision is slowly unpacked, like real time. I understand God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus, he's Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea. Beginning from Galilee, after the baptism John proclaimed, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Why? God was with him. 
and were witnesses of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And then he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he's the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. And to him, all the prophets bear witness. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And then you're going to see, okay, that the Spirit of God falls on these people. And Peter's amazed and he goes, well, they have the gift of the Holy Spirit. And they're speaking in tongues. And something's going on. God's confirming his hand on the Gentiles. Let's get these people baptized. Okay. So the whole vision God gave Peter, people have argued, only relates to what he did in the Gentiles' lives. How he's just opening a door. But again... God could have used any vision, specifically, he chose to use animals that were clean and unclean to demonstrate, I have declared what you used to call common, now clean. So the question becomes, with the Gentiles being declared clean by God, is there possibly biblical reasoning to say, along with that comes other things that used to be unclean that are now clean? In other words, I'm hinting at dietary laws. Let me take you to Romans 14. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he can eat anything. Now you go, well, he's just talking about like meat sacrificed to idols. He'll go on. One person believes he can eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Notice how the person that has a stronger conscience towards things like foods. Uh, Paul actually refers to them as weaker in faith. Not making a statement about what you think about food, but the, the degree to which you think that has spiritual implications and how strongly, uh, how sensitive you are to things like that can be an indication of, not always, but can be an indication of spiritual growth that's needed and understanding that's lacking. So verse three, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Don't let the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls. He will be upheld. The Lord is able to make him stand. Scroll down to verse 14. I know and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus now watch this startling statement that will, people will find any way to work around because they hold so strictly to the dietary laws. Listen, Paul goes, I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Does he say no one? He says nothing. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. So do you remember how I said, I'm not telling anyone not to hold to the dietary laws. Okay, all I want is for your convictions and your conscience to be rooted in a proper understanding of scripture. Because if you misinterpret and that informs your conscience and your convictions, you start to hold people to standards that frankly, God doesn't. And you make a personal conviction an objective command. And I think Paul is warning that we don't do that. Nothing is unclean in itself. 
But if your conscience testifies to the fact that it is unclean, Paul in Romans, well, 12 verses earlier will say maybe, like that's a weak person who has to grow up in understanding, or maybe that conviction will follow them the rest of their life. But that conviction shouldn't be pressed upon everyone. Why? Because nothing's unclean in itself. Go down to verse 20. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean. What did Paul say? Anything regarding food is indeed clean. So does this relate to the vision Peter was given? Can we say that that vision was only about the people and not about anything within the Mosaic law that was once unclean and now is clean? I think we're starting to see reasons to believe that the dietary laws maybe aren't requirement anymore for the people of God in the new covenant. Everything is indeed clean, but it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. And you go, he's, he's just addressing meat. He doesn't say every kind of meat is clean. He doesn't say uh, no kind of meat is unclean. He says everything to cover all the bases, just to be clear. And we looked at Colossians 2, the laws that are don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Paul goes, look, you died to those things. Why? Because he fulfilled it. Jesus fulfilled it. Titus chapter 1 says, To the pure, all things are pure. To the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Hmm. Interesting. So this is an issue of spiritual cleanliness, right? Not an issue of physical one. Now, how I relate with my body and what I use my body for doesn't at all in, you know, change the fact that I'm cleansed and washed in the sight of God. Not a license to sin, but the point is, okay, our bodies are given to us as a gift of God to use and give back to Him in an honorable way. So don't commit sexual immorality. Don't be doing dumb things. Don't be cursing people with your lips. But when it comes to absolute purity, not just purity in lifestyle, but being pure in the sight of God, that's a work of Jesus. And now my life over time should begin to reflect that. And to that person that is pure by the work of Jesus and has witnessed to that purity and faith by their life over time. Well, Paul is saying, well, to that pure person, all things are pure. That doesn't mean everything is now permissible and now I can just do whatever I want. There's no commands for me because Christ fulfilled it. That means specifically regarding what once defiled or was called unclean in the Mosaic law. It seems to be that now to the person who is pure, which is what the heart and wisdom behind those laws was always about. It was always about giving humanity a category for God does see something as clean and unclean. And you go, yeah, those categories are eternal. I think the categories for animals being clean and unclean was a temporary seasonal thing he did in Israel to make an eternal point about our spiritual nature to begin giving humanity the categories for some people are clean and some people are unclean based on their relationship with and to God. And you're pure because of Christ and you're impure if you're not in him. And the, the, the dietary laws were physical, you know, visible material symbols of a greater, deeper wisdom and reality, which is people are clean or unclean, not because of what they do or don't eat, but because of their, the nature of their relationship with God or lack of. So 
These people, both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So, let me take it to Hebrews 9. I understand people's frustration with this and the, the, the need, almost the want to find a workaround because maybe you've been educated for so long uh, on the other side of this that you can't see this. You refuse to. All I'm trying to show you is that biblically, New Covenant precedence, New Testament witness, is that we aren't required as the people of God to hold to the dietary laws. Colossians 2, Hebrews 10 makes it very clear. Everything in the Mosaic law at the bare minimum was a symbol, a shadow of Jesus and all that he would do. Some things functioned seasonally for the people of Israel as an actual thing they did to bear witness to the wisdom that Jesus would fulfill and bring and the substance he would bring. Some things played their role and their function changes. I've already gone over that. So again, if there's a change in the priesthood, Hebrews makes it clear that along with that comes a change in the law. Now you don't get to decide what that is. God has made that clear. And I think we're starting to see in Hebrews 9, 8 through 10. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates the way into the holy places, the true holy of holies, the actual presence of God. That's not opened as long as the first section is still standing. And that first section, which we see in the temple as the holy place, that's symbolic for the present age. That era, that way of relating to God has to pass away in order for us to have access to the true presence of God through Christ. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. So we agree that the dietary laws and the sacrificial offerings, none of those dealt with the real issue, which is my stained heart and conscience. Sin pollutes that. But it did testify to what Christ would do in a real spiritual eternal way. So these arrangements, these gifts and sacrifices deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations, until the time of Reformation. Now again, there are some people who would say, well, the food and drink only refers to what you would bring to God, whether it was the, the, the grain offering or an offering of, of wine or an offering of your, your, your harvest or an offering, burn offering, guilt offering, sin offering, whatever it is. This has to do with approaching the temple in a sacrificial manner to bring a gift to God for sure. But isn't also within the Mosaic law, isn't me holding to the dietary laws of Israel also a form of honoring and worshiping God? So this is not just about, hey, you worship God by bringing him stuff at the temple. This is about you worship God by the way you conduct yourself as an Israelite in the nation. So I don't think it's fair to say if food and drink has only to do with the sacrificial laws. Because he wouldn't bring in washings and regulations. That goes beyond just the approaching of the temple. There's clean and unclean laws there. There's washings if you interact with mold. There's washings if you deal with dead bodies. There's regulations until the time of reformation. And you go, well, that hasn't come yet. Are you sure? Verse 11 says, when Christ appeared 
as our high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater, more perfect tent, not made with hands, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places to secure an eternal redemption. So I would say the time of reformation has to do with our high priest finishing his work, which results in a, re a reformation of the old covenant into the new. It's a transition. Things have changed. Things have adjusted. And you have to discern through and have the biblical reasoning to know how to sort through the different laws that we see in the Old Testament. And I think dietary laws per Hebrews 9 and, and 1 Timothy 4. And let me tell you this. I, I didn't bring in 1 Timothy 4. This is just like a cherry on top. Okay. I brought in Hebrews and Romans. I brought in Colossians. I brought in Titus. This is not one or two witnesses. Acts, the vision, Jesus saying he declares all foods clean. Like this is a lot of witness. First Timothy 4, 5, uh, chapter, chapter 4, 1 through 5. Now the Spirit expressly says, Paul speaking to Timothy, um, in later times some will depart from the faith. How? Well, by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Oof, through the insinc insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, they forbid marriage and they require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. And you go, well, he's only talking about the clean foods that God gave us to be received with thanksgiving. Or if it is about all foods, he's saying that becomes an issue of salvation for these people. And they're saying, you got to do these to be saved. Well, hold on. Verse four will clarify. Everything created by God is good. He's not just talking about some foods, some kind of foods. He uses the, that umbrella term of Everything created by God is what? Good. Nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. He's not just talking about meat offered to idols. For it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. So there are people, Paul has been warned by the Holy Spirit, people are going to depart from the simple, beautiful gospel and maybe hold people hostage to these things and say, you have to do this to be saved. But it also seems to be indicating that there are things that are unclean that God, frankly, has said you can receive with thanksgiving because he declared all things clean. Jesus declared all foods clean. Peter, Paul declared that there, everything's clean now. And then you wonder how we find ourselves in Galatians, uh, Oh, man. Chapter 2, when Paul confronts Peter, remember? And he's eating with Gentiles. Well, that's not an issue. This is way later in the New Testament. We've already established you can eat with Gentiles, and they're in the kingdom. So what's the issue? Is he possibly eating foods with the Gentiles that they're accustomed to eating, that the Jews would declare unclean? Because remember, he's afraid of the circumcision party. Paul confronts that garbage. Let me tell you this. I, I'm going to be open and upfront and absolutely transparent. Okay. I don't think this is a, a silver bullet for people who say, see, dietary laws are still required. But I do think it's, you know, my responsibility to at least let you know in Revelation 18, it says this. 
After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, and a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. All the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. The merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Now, is this just prophetic metaphorical language? Is there still a category in Revelation when Babylon does fall? If this is in fact not Israel and Jerusalem falling in AD 70, if we can say this is something else, like the Babylon as a system that's you know existed throughout human history, if this is the once for all Babylon system crashing down and Jesus comes in to decimate it, there is still a category for unclean spirit, unclean bird, unclean beasts. There are a couple things I like to propose. This is either uh, hyperbolic, metaphorical language that the people of, that were receiving this letter would be accustomed to and go, oh, we, we understand that. Or, okay, there is indeed still that category that God doesn't actually hold people to anymore. Or, it's just stating the uncleanness of Babylon itself by using prophetic Old Testament imagery that you would understand, Right? Unclean spirit, unclean bird. You would understand like, oh, that's a place where like, yeah, unclean spirits should be dwelling. That's, that's like a territory that is not of God. So is that language being used here? Or is God literally by this angel saying, yes, I still have categories for unclean spirit. I just think he's working. This is my perspective. I think as John's receiving this vision, the, the angel and God knows this. The angel is using language that the audience would be familiar with. Not to say that those categories are still in play for the people of God. I think that would be reading into the text of it. I think it's just communicating an absolute truth through categories that have existed throughout the Jewish nation for a long time. They would be familiar with that. So I did not get to the Sabbath like I wanted. I did communicate why. I do believe we are not required to hold to the dietary laws of the Mosaic law anymore. I don't see that. And if you're not convinced, that's fine. I'm not telling you not to. I'm just telling you, don't tell everyone else they have to. There's, there's a difference between a personal conviction that is from your own, the spirit of God and your conscience testifies to that difference between that and an objective command God makes for all of his people. I don't believe dietary laws fall under that objective command for all of God's people. Did I make my case? I sure hope I did. But again, I, this is not me telling you, don't hold to the dietary laws, it's dumb. This is me saying, don't tell other people they have to, or they're not really walking in step with the spirit, or they're not really honoring God the way they could, or God requires it of them, and they're not really enjoying the light of his presence and the light of fe his fellowship and, and bearing his name well, unless they hold to those laws. Where is that in the New Testament? And you go, well, we don't have to say anything in the New Testament. The Old Testament is witness. Have we not established that things adjust and shift and change function and purpose from the old into the new. And that's not something any denomination made up. There's lots of biblical witness for that. A lot. So I, I believe I've, I've done my job. We will speak of the Sabbath on Monday.
It won't be a long video, really. There's not a lot I'm going to say about that. But I'm going to hold on to my Sabbath argument. We're going to save that for Monday. You guys have a great Thanksgiving. But before you go, go to AboveReproachMinistry.com. Check out our online church. Check out all our free resources, devotional studies, online Bible study courses, Bible study worksheets, Bible study workshops, everything you can imagine. If you want to learn how to read the Bible better and go deeper in your study, tons of free resources that, by the way, are only possible because of generous supporters like you guys. So thank you for those that give. Uh, if you want to partner with us and help us continue resourcing the church and moving people towards Jesus, not that we do that, but God through us is doing that. If you want to help us, teach people how to read the Bible so they can live and teach the Bible themselves. You can give right here on our donate page through debit or credit card. You can give through PayPal, Cash App, Venmo, Patreon, be a monthly supporter, tons of exclusive benefits. Buy some church merch. I also have Bible study programs. I, for instance, on my online courses, we're slowly releasing my entire program, but that's gonna probably take at least another year. If you would like to shortcut that process and just get the whole program delivered to you, you can purchase that right here on Teespring. Or if you want to get different keyword plans, Bible workout plans, um, you can get that here as well. Uh, this is for people who like don't want to wait. We're going to release all the content free over the course of the, at least the next year or so. But if you're like impatient and you want the whole Bible study program with all four plans, you can get that here. As well as any our beautiful mugs. You can take a sip of truth while you're reading your Bible. Right? I think that's it. I did it. AboveReproachMinistry.com. You guys have a good day. Keep moving towards Jesus. Don't be mad at me. I bring all my uh, your angry comments to andrewhummel at gmail.com. <laughs> you guys. Me.